to For All Mumkind, the podcast. A podcast for mums, by mums. My name is Pamela, and in each episode, I will sit down and chat to a mum about motherhood. The ups and downs and everything in between. Today's guest is a full-time sleep consultant. She's helped countless families both directly and indirectly. She's the best-selling author of The Baby Sleep Solution and a mum to Jesse, Ellen, Eden and Harry. It's Lucy Wolf. Welcome, Lucy. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Lucy, when we started talking about recording this episode, we found a common ground and considering sleep as a form of self-care. And when I started thinking about myself becoming a mum, I was really nervous around the concept of babies not sleeping and therefore me not sleeping. And I knew that I'm someone who needs my sleep as I have a really busy mind. Mm. And there are so many memes and humour pieces out there about how funny it is for new parents not to sleep. And it really grinds me when I see that because it's not funny. And if you have a mum who has anxiety or postnatal depression, the lack of sleep is only going to make that worse. Yeah, and it's interesting, Pamela, because I don't always feel that expectant parents actually consider the sleep piece. It's generally the last consideration. So, for example, if I'm at an event with expectant parents, I'm not of interest to them. Six months later, same event, they'll queue around the corner to speak with me because it's really only when baby arrives that maybe we discover that sleep can be really challenging when we are dealing with young babies and that I actually think it's only then we start to realize the importance of sleep. Now, obviously you personally have a high level of value on sleep already, but I actually don't find that to generally be the case. And I think it's until we start living that real experience of, unfortunately, sleep deprivation that comes with young babies, that it's their typical tendency. Um, And then of course, then we do have to look at the self-care, the drafting and support, because babies don't sleep well. And although you might love seven hours, eight hours, they have no respect for that. (laughs) And they're going to wake often, feed often. And so then we need to be putting those measures in place early on that maybe I like the idea of new mums, you know, going to bed early and maybe encouraging the other parent to do the this last feed concept you know maybe express before you go to bed early and then dad can do the last feed and then maybe you might not need to be woken again until two or two o'clock and then we get maybe five hours and we know that trying to get a block of five hours has a huge positive impact on our emotional state You weren't always a sleep consultant, so was it needing to find sleep for yourself when you had your kids that got you into the area? Oh, certainly. I had a completely different career. And when I had my first baby, he's nearly 17. Um, He was actually a really good sleeper. And then he became a horrible sleeper. And I actually didn't know that could happen. I knew nothing about sleep. And it spiked my interest. And then when I was trying to find support, around it I discovered there was none and then I went on to have another baby 
two years between them. And then she was a totally different sleeper to him. And again, no support, no resources, except I kept reading about the idea of sleep consultants and clinics you could go to. But when I asked my GP, they didn't exist here. And so I kind of filed it away at the time. And then as I went on, I was expecting my third baby then. I was also actively thinking that I would like a different, a change in career. And then I thought about the more people I met, parents, they also were experiencing the same challenges that I had been experiencing. And so I felt that I could become that person that I really needed at that moment in time. So I retrained and became what I am now and have been doing for nearly 10 years, becoming that resource for families. And it's been amazing. And again, I work with families directly and that is my true love. But of course my book then I feel is an extension of that and it has a wide reach. And I guess it's a very privileged and honored profession for me to be in to be supporting families the way I really wanted to be supported. Yourself and your husband, did you share the sleeping duties with your kids? Yeah, we did. I couldn't say that we didn't. I breastfed all of my children uh, for extended, an extended, extended period. So obviously I was in charge of the feeding piece, but we certainly, we shared the load, like very early on, it was obvious that it was a two man job when there was two men involved. And I, my husband is very hands-on and we share the load across the board and nobody's got one specific job but everybody pitches in and as our family grew we assumed different roles and I definitely I've evolved hugely which I think is the nature of parenting and so has my husband and we've grown together And, you know, we're in different territory now. We've got teenagers and that is very, very different territory again. At one point you had four small kids. How did you keep them all in routine when there were four of them? I I think even when we only had one and I didn't do this for a living, we still had a relatively early bedtime my brother had kids. My sister had had a bit. We were all, we all had children around the same sort of age. And when we were growing up, we all went to bed early. So we had a fairly regular bedtime with our children really, really early on. And I love my sleep like you. And so it was it was a priority. But so was also making time for us as a couple. And so having the children go to bed allowed us to maybe reconnect once everyone has gone to bed. So, I mean, it was really difficult. There's no way of saying that having three children under the age of eight was easy. It wasn't. And, oh, my goodness, I thought I might go insane at different periods in time. But, you know, I remember I said three children, one bedtime routine, baby probably, you know, attached to me. in some shape or form but you live it and you love it and it is part of growing a family unit and then you look back and I definitely look back and I feel oh my goodness I don't know how I did it 
I met somebody yesterday, actually a mom of four young children and her youngest was 16 months. And, you know, she seemed, you know, at her, her lowest point. And she just said, I find it really hard. And I said, I, I found it really hard. Like I used to have to go to Tesco's with three children in the trolley. There was no room for food. There was just three children in the trolley. <laughs> and it just was my life. And we were, you, you enjoy it and you, you are where you are at that moment in time. And it gets easier and it gets more civilized and people start to be able to do things for themselves. Like when my um, third baby was born, they were all under five. Nobody could do anything for themselves. So if you're trying to go into your car, everybody needed a seatbelt put on. Nobody could be trusted to get out of the car without being run over. You needed to get out the double buggy, which is a contraption of itself. But it's all part of it. And we really don't value what we do. We are amazing. Being a mum is such a new skill. I was laughing way to myself there thinking about you getting the three kids into the car. I always think with one kid, you have two hands, a second child, you have a hand each for them. But once the third arrives, you're kind of outnumbered. Oh, outnumbered. And you see, outnumbered spectacularly. And outmaneuvered, outnegotiated. It's just, I mean, it's part of the chaos, <laughs> I think. Um, but there are those moments of brilliance and the love that comes and that you feel. And I guess that's what really it's all about. And with your sleep solution, you empower mums to dress their children's sleep. But you very much say, take this piece by piece. You can only do your best with what you have and what suits your family. Ideally, there is a gold standard, but you as your as a mum yourself realise there are day-to-day pressures that can intercept sleep for babies. So for a new mum starting off, what would you recommend? I love, first of all, that you think that I empower mums, because actually that's really close to me, that I felt as a parent all those years ago that I had to be everything, had to look great, manage everything great. The house looked needed to look great. You needed to look like you were coping. Does that make sense to you? And Yeah, and that's still there to this day. I know, and I just trying to break down those barriers. I know one me, I'm one person on my own. I know I can't do that, but I am very much an uh, advocate to truly support parents. Not just say I support parents, but to break down those barriers, to um, change the way we speak to each other, you know, because I hear about support, but I sometimes feel it isn't support, that if you didn't breastfeed, that sometimes there is a, you know, two camps, or if you are feeding, that you're in a different, you know, and that if you want to not feed a certain way, or if you want a baby-led wean, or if you don't. And I often think that there is a lot of non-support in the support context. Does that make any sense to you? And I... I think as well that we have been disempowered as a parenting cohort by unrealistic ideals of babies that should sleep through the night by a certain pace and time based on their weight or based on their age or that they should do two hour naps because somebody somewhere made that up. And I am very keen that, yes, you have to normalize sleep is highly complex. Lots of parents come to me and they feel they failed because they haven't managed to get their children to sleep 
uh, well, or however way you want to describe it. And I often say to them, oh my goodness, I can't imagine why you feel you should be able to do it on your own. It's so complex. There's so many force factors, so many things that affect our children's sleep. There is any wonder that somewhere between 40 to 70% of us struggle with our children's sleep at some point in our parenting career. And I guess I think that for me, I'm always trying to say, look, there's no right way. There's no wrong way. We're doing our best, absolutely. But there's always opportunity. And I like the idea that there is an opportunity to improve things, grow, to learn, to become informed. Because across the board, we know that parents who become slightly more informed about sleep, how sleep works, what causes some sleep challenges, they tend to have children that sleep better than those that maybe are not informed. And again, I feel that if we become informed and if we can be supported within that, and of course, realistic, then I think then we can stay in that good emotional place for ourselves. And that has a knock-on positive effect for our little families, our children, our relationships. And that's what it comes down to. And I love how you say there's no such thing as spoiling your baby. People tell you as a new mom, don't be spoiling them or they'll never sleep now. Mm -hmm. But you actually say embrace those weeks and months and what you are actually doing is creating a safe space for them by making them feel loved and safe. And I think that, again, it's a topic really close to my heart that whatever way your baby comes, whether they sleep great, they don't sleep great, that's your baby. And your your sole task is to help them to feel loved, safe and secure. That's your task as a parent, full stop. But in those early weeks and months, it's about getting to know each other. It's about building trust, connection, emotional connectivity and building that relationship that's going to be, you know, long standing. And even though it's hard, it's challenging, you will be more tired than you've ever been in your whole entire life. But it's not about you now. It's about the, you, the two of you as a unit. And every child has a different parent. So again, the parent I am to Jesse is a completely different parent than I am to Harry. Because we're emotionally different. We respond differently. They respond differently. And we're in this little relationship that will be a long-standing relationship and you are growing that relationship from the moment you from the moment of conception and then of course then reality kicks in where we have to then also be available to them for everything and again it's about teaching them that you are responsive you understand what they're trying to communicate with you that you're decoding the messages that they send you and that to me brings up and heightens the connection between you and then I feel you can work on sleep behind the scenes because there's things there's certain things that don't help sleep and of course if we know what they are and we can start to act to work on those in a really sort of behind the scenes capacity then I feel that if we link all those little items together then I feel that you are helping to establish what I describe as being positive sleep practices but actually what it might be described as is positive parenting practices You talk about being responsive. When you begin as a mum, people are very quick to show you the early signs for feeding. You learn that your public health nurse will talk to you about picking up these signs. But nobody tells you about the early signs of sleep. So the signs that we end up recognising are actually that of of a child that's overtired. Mm. That's correct. And I think that that one little piece of information is probably the first most important sleep message that you can get that if we can learn to read the language of sleep really early on because just like with feeding as you say they will give you the cue for feeding and you have been told how to 
maybe decode that. But we are not told necessarily how to decode the language of sleep. And it's really simple. We're looking for brief fire-ups, brief yawns, moments of quiet. We are not looking for intense eye-rubbing, big-type yawning, agitation, which is often what we rely on. And just unfortunately, the way that sleep is designed, that when we see those more intense symptoms, baby's body has a chemical reaction. And this chemical reaction is cortisol and adrenaline to the system, which just has two jobs. It makes it really hard for the body to go to sleep, which is why parents then get into a loop of sleep resistance. And then it also causes the body really difficult to stay asleep because the body is in a hyper alert state. So again, if we can help parents to understand that just reading your baby, going on early cues, brief fire ups, brief yawns, moments of quiet, not allowing baby to stay awake for longer than certain periods of time, because that's what they, they do well on. So your new baby really needs to go back for a sleep every probably one to two hours, which is a really short period of time. But if we're not informed about this, then some babies can stay awake for six hours. They ideally shouldn't, but they can, just like us. We can pull an all-nighter if we need to. And so the baby's body goes into that fight-or-flight mode. And that would be, for me, one of the first positive steps towards laying a little foundation towards better sleep. When can someone start to introduce positive sleep practices? I feel from, without being under pressure, that's the key. But I think from six weeks onwards, once you've had your six-week checkup, ideally your feeding practice has been established, you may have uncovered specific things that are going on with your baby. So maybe if you've got some digestive issues like reflux or some colic, then you're aware of them at this stage. And I think that if you can, from six weeks onwards, I would definitely start to like do this working behind the scenes piece and just have a couple of, you know, points that I try and hit with a family in the early days. You know, we know that sleep problems come from two main areas as your baby gets older. So then if we understand those early on, we can work on them behind the scenes so that prevention is better than cure. Because, you know, unfortunately, Pamela, I spend my working week working with families correcting issues. And if we can start in the early weeks and months without, without being under too much pressure to lay this foundation, then the likelihood of having to come to see me is really low. And what would be the most common issues that you would see on a daily basis? So I guess the reported problems would maybe be make it it's really hard to get the baby to go to sleep so maybe taking one to three hours just to actually get baby to achieve sleep or parents report waking really frequently throughout the course of the night you know we're not talking about waking for necessary feeds or brief reassurance I would have someone yesterday in my practice whose baby was waking every 40 minutes from bedtime to morning time that's really really hard um Maybe waking up at one o'clock and not going back to sleep till three o'clock in the morning. Wake at four o'clock to start the day. Spending hours trying to get your baby to nap for 20 minute nap durations. That would, they would be very common issues that, that I observe or I hear from parents when they come to see me. And again, we're not talking on realistic expectations, but even baby needs better than that. Yeah, because... 
you recoup and you restore while you're resting. This is it. And I guess, you know, and this is why I try to get parents to think of their children's sleep actually in two halves. Now, this is a disproportionate cycle. But if I encourage you to think of, you know, sleep in the first six months is quite immature and we have low expectations. But then sleep beyond six months is more developed. We can still have our challenges there, but there is a concept that emotionally and developmentally your baby can be helped to learn to sleep a bit better. And again, this doesn't mean sleeping through the night necessarily, whereas that's always lovely. But for me, the words I use would be, you know, more consolidated, less interrupted, deeper, longer, more sleep for everybody. And then from six months plus, and I work with families from six months to six years, we definitely feel that that's there to be improved. And even if you feel you've tried loads of different things, there is always an answer. There's always a solution. So it's just about trying to data mine and figure things out. Um, And then before six months, I would always do my sleep shaping because that means that maybe you won't have an issue to correct. But in the first six months, we tend to not use... Um, huge level of intervention. Your method is a very gentle sleep solution. It's the stay in support. Yeah, it's important to me as a parent and a professional that whatever way we improve sleep, that it would never be at the child's expense of their emotional well-being and your connection with them. And so unfortunately, historically, the resources to address sleep where maybe you just have to let them cry you know, close the door on your baby and just let them cry. And sometimes even when parents did that, it didn't help. And I guess for me, I will have a holistic approach, trying to take every aspect into account. But if we are helping a child to transition from a, a, a sleep ability that doesn't maintain their sleep overnight. So, for example, sometimes if your baby is rocked to sleep at bedtime, that creates a vulnerability to needing to be rocked back to sleep through the night because they need rocking through every sleep phase. So transition from that, rather than leaving your baby to cry, I would I use get parents to use my stay and support approach, which actually is allowing the parent and the child to be together in the learning, to allow the parent to accompany the child so they're never left alone. And whilst there may well be upset on the child's part as they process the change, Parents can be physically responsive, verbally responsive, emotionally connected, um, and they can use my approach to overcome the vulnerability and create a higher level of sleep ability, which enhances the ability to sleep through the night. We would use the staying support with our daughter, Alice, and actually putting her asleep at night time is far easier than during the day. So for her daytime naps, we use other supports. We started off using white noise. Yeah. And now she's kind of grown out of that. And bizarrely, we've moved on to Shotgun by George Ezra. Anytime we put it on, it relaxes her and puts her to sleep. We don't really know why. I know, but I think it's great that you find things that help your baby. And again, white noise, rhythm, music, these are things that babies associate, you know, they can, you know, matches the heartbeat, they can regulate that way. Um, The white noise specifically is reminiscent of being in the womb, so it's a safe place, helps the brain go into a deeper section of sleep quicker. So there are loads of things that we can do as parents that support us external things that we can do to support us. And again, you're right about what you say about going to sleep at bedtime is the relatively easy piece, even to correct it, even if that is the thing that you struggle with the most, 
helping families establish a better bedtime is probably the easiest part of my job. Helping children sleep better overnight and nap during the day is probably the most challenging part of my job because they are the most challenging pieces of sleep characteristically. Interestingly, though, bedtime, so the easiest part, it's easy because of the sleep drive. It's easy because of the way the brain is designed because of the science of sleep. And it's easy because the sleep hormone is there and it helps us. But it also is the place where all the learning is done. So when we need to make changes, it's bedtime specifically that we focus on, because if we have the skill at bedtime, the ability, sleep ability, as I call it, at bedtime, then that becomes a transferable skill to the overnight and into the daytime. And for the daytime naps, depending on the age of the child, they go from having three naps a day down to one as they get older. Yeah. So as a mum, you're trying to do the best for your baby. But if you've got errands to run, school runs to do, how do you juggle that when the gold standard is that they take their naps in a dark room in a bed? Well, I suppose, let's say best practice as your baby gets older. So let's say six months plus best practice would be that in the ideal world that there's naps, nap one and nap two that you would have for, you know, up to about 15 months would be cut based with a level of flexibility, Pamela. But again, that's best practice. So for me, I'm always encouraging parents to do what they feel works. Bearing in mind, I work on troubleshooting. So when I'm troubleshooting, I try to get best practice in place. And then once best practice is in place, I encourage a level of flexibility thereafter. But if you came to me as a client and you said to me, look, I really don't want naps in the cot, then we would do our best to get naps in an, in a, another way that we would make sure that Alice doesn't miss her necessary daytime sleep. Because her daytime sleep has an influencing factor on her nighttime sleep. So the balance of sleep, the amount of sleep that your baby gets during the day has an either positive or negative influence on your night time. And so it's about understanding that and maybe doing everything that we can to make sure that your baby is as best rested as they can be. And again, you all, we all make decisions as our little family. Like I remember with my oldest guy, I used to always walk for nap number one because I love to walk and he used to nap in the buggy on the pram on the walk. And then he would have his second nap in the cot. And then as time went on, I had more children, obviously. And we, as a household unit, have always prioritised the children's sleep because it meant everything to us to sleep at night. And then it seemed to us that they just slept better routinely if they were in their cots and that even if they were in the car, they might sleep, but they might not sleep as well. So then we would do that here and there, but we wouldn't do it routinely. But again, I just get you to find your level, what works for you, what feels good for you, what feels right for you. And then within that, we find the space and opportunity. Another issue from listening and talking to other mums is that you've got vaccinations, teething and ear infections. Mm. So you can have a routine built up, but things can get disrupted. They really can. And then I think that, you know, sleep is quite vulnerable. It's fragile, let's call it. And again, there are so many things that affect it. So the major effect, the things that affect sleep are obviously teething and sickness and disruption from travel. You've got your vaccinations, like you say. Um, once you've established positive sleep practices, you have you do get hit by that interruption. And I encourage families then to have a response plan for a time of teething or sickness so that you are only affected for that little short period of time. And then as soon as your baby feels better, their great sleep reemerges. 
the challenge for a lot of families is that if they haven't mastered positive sleep practices and their baby routinely wakes anyway, it's very hard to see the wood for the trees. They spend a lot of time blaming other things. So blaming teeth indefinitely, blaming sickness indefinitely. Whereas actually, if we can improve the sleep, what we're looking for then is that for the disruptions to be the exception rather than the rule. And that is totally achievable. But sleep ultimately does need upkeep and maintenance because it's ever changing and evolving and that there's so many things that affect it. But again, this comes down to, you know, being information based and led so that you know what you're doing, you know what you can do to, to change things, you know what you need to adjust at a time of sickness, you know how to deal with things in a time of sickness that don't continually send you back down the crack, if you like. Something that every new mum looks forward to is planning and designing the nursery. We live in a world of Instagram and Pinterest that is full of all these beautiful nurseries. Mm. And then I was reading your book and you had a mum who was having an issue with her child sleeping. So you filmed the child asleep to see that they were having these chats with a teddy that was in the room. And that is and that was what was causing the problem. So what should be in a child's bedroom versus what we see on Pinterest? I know. And again, it's a down to what works for you. But I suppose from a sleep perspective, we need it to be safe, secure, comfortable, dark and warm enough, not too hot, not too cold. Everything else is just details. Then I always try to look at the child's sleep environment from their point of view. So like you mentioned about the kid babies chatting to their teddies. I just remember one of my own children chatting to a shadow of a towel that was hanging on the back of the door on the, in the middle of the night. He was on the phone to it. And I guess anything can spark their interest. The light on the monitor can be distracting. Now, we're not looking for clinical environments, but we just like to look at it from your child's sleep point of view. I don't know if it's in the book or not, but I had another child before and I just could not figure out what was waking him. And ultimately, I figured out that there was a sliding, a mirrored sliding wardrobe. And every time he moved, he could see himself moving. And every time he moved, so himself moving, it made him get up. So it's about being mindful about all the little things. But you still want it to be a lovely environment. It's their bedroom. And I really encourage families to spend lots of non-sleep time in the bedroom with your child. Play with them in the bedroom. Finch nappies in the bedroom. Get them dressed in the bedroom. And sometimes parents are like, oh, no, we never, would never do that because we don't want them to associate it with play. But it's about making them feel safe. And maybe that they feel that this is a nice place to be. And then when it's time for bed, we change the context. It's always safe and secure that it's time for sleep and we put messages around that. I think it's important that wherever your baby sleeps, that they, they associate it with a positive emotion. And at what ages then should we be moving our children from the Moses basket or co-sleeper into a cot and then a bed? Okay, so I guess, you know, at the moment, most parents will have a sleeper, like a crib sleeper, that type of environment. And then I feel they're great until four, maybe six months. And then baby's quite active and mobile. And those items then start, they start to have grown out of them. And I would feel the same for any, not recommended, but people do use them positioners, you know. But at, once your baby is mobile, I really want them in a conventional cot. And I just want them in the, the cot. I don't want extras. So I don't want any sort of, positioners for example don't need lots of things in the cot I feel like the only thing that needs to be in the cot is your baby's body and their bedding and 
I, although I, again, this is me being a bit over the top. I don't like mobiles because I think they distract children. And I think they're disconcerting, hanging over them in the middle of the night. So again, I create that clean sleep environment. So I guess from six months, definitely I'd like to see your baby at a conventional cot, if that's the decision you're making about where you want them to sleep. And then I like that they stay in their cot, ideally, until they're maybe closer to three. Yeah, so you recommend in the book to keep them in the cot for as long as possible. Yeah, I like that the transition from cot to big bed is a smooth transition and it often sometimes isn't. Often the transition is prematurely done as a reaction to improving, trying to improve sleep. And very often it can do that. The problem with going to the cot, the bed too soon is that your baby is maybe developmentally not completely able to follow instructions through. And this often can lead to a parents having to stay, help them stay in the bed and maybe they end up sharing with them overnight when that's not what they wanted to do, let's say, as a family unit, so that the bed becomes more than some of its parts. I like that if you think of it a bit like this, I think a big bed is at the right time when your baby has, you know, maybe grown out of their nap. So that's around three. They are toilet trained, so there's no nappy. And then I think that's a really good time to look at maybe doing a bed. But I, I mean, my youngest child, Harry, he stayed in a cot until he was three and a half. And even when we moved him, we only moved him because he was toilet trained and calling us to go to the bathroom and we were lazy. Um, and when he came out of his cot, he was really upset. He wanted to stay sleeping in his cot because he really felt really safe there. So again, I'm a big advocate of leaving your baby in a cot for as long as possible. And most cots these days are cot slash beds so that they are designed for even the biggest children. More parents of late are choosing to let their kids room share and even bed share. What is your take on that, especially if you have two children of different ages? Yeah, and I guess room sharing itself. So obviously, let's say with your new baby, the parents are going to room share with the baby for at least the first six months. And then beyond that, I kind of feel it's a personal decision. And so once, let's say, your baby is in their own room, some parents do want their children to room share. And I guess... If your children are going to room share, I feel that, first of all, both parties or all th- whoever is in the room need to be relatively good sleepers so that no one's going to be panicking about one waking the other or having to continually hook maybe one out to save the sleep of the other. So I think it makes sense that we've got two good sleepers or three good sleepers if we're going to room share. And then I generally feel that it's good to have some guidelines around room sharing so that there's going to be an older child generally in this so that they understand that you know we do no talking once the lights go out maybe we don't wake another child and then you figure out you know do you do one bedtime one better routine one bedtime and does that match with your baby that naps and maybe your child that doesn't and does their sleeping tendencies do they match so do they both need dark and quiet or does one need dark and one need light and one need music and one not? So you need to try and get them to synchronize with each other because otherwise you're not meeting one of their needs anyway. And that's, I feel that's important. Personally, I'm not a big fan of the room sharing, but I understand that A, loads of people want their children to share and that's perfect. So then it's about getting it to work. And B, sometimes spatially, it's not an option not for them to room share. I guess I have two girls in the middle. I've got two boys, bookend boys, as I call them, and then two girls in the middle. There's just two years between them, so they could have easily shared a room. But as we, and we thought that they would actually, 
Um, and actually, in fact, I think one of the first things my husband did was buy two matching beds for them when the second little girl was born. But as they grew, we actually, did, their personality types were so different that I felt it would be unfair on either one of them to share a room. And we were fortunate that we didn't need them too spatially. But again, if we are going down the road of room sharing, it's just about making it work for your situation. And loads of families that I meet, you know, have been room sharers as children themselves, and they really want that for their family. So it's about just trying to kind of find that common ground where it's still room sharing and sleep, and it's not it's not being sacrificed by one or both of them because of it. Something I would never have known about until I became a mum are developmental leaps and growth spurts. The Wonder Weeks book and app were recommended to me and we use them regularly. Knowledge really is power when you're a parent, isn't it? It is. And I guess I'm a big fan of the Wonder Weeks app, if not the book. Um, I should have said when I spoke about sleeping disturbed by teething and sickness I oft, I always mentioned developmental leaps as well I don't know why I didn't um, because I do obviously believe that develop, neurodevelopmental transitions has an impact on your sleep and I think sometimes again knowing that when sleep has been going well and it starts to not go well you don't have teething symptoms your baby's not sick well then generally it, it is neurodevelopmental learning a new skill that's maybe obvious or just developing and processing stuff that's not obvious so having that um, information to hand again helps to reconcile that this is okay this is just a blip we'll keep plodding away we'll st- we won't change much because whatever's going on will pass and then your great sleep will su- uh, rise back up to the surface no i don't lie my life on it either you know so i suppose i wouldn't want you hanging on every word of the app because i think that if you look at how many times your baby's going to go through a leap and how many growth spurts and how many um leaps there actually are there's no clean space and then if we interlink everything else that goes on i think it's good to know and again you're right information is power but the problem is that by the time we're seeking that information sometimes we're too tired to process it and then often there's so much conflicting information out there so many different schools of thought and this also adds to the anxiety for families that they're not sure if what's the right thing to do and then everyone's got a little bit of an opinion especially where sleep is concerned so again obviously i appreciate i add to that voice but i do try to be the voice of reason in terms of saying look Yes, it can always be improved on, but we're trying to st- keep it real and be authentic and that you'd never do anything that you're not comfortable with. And that's really important to me. So if you even if you're using my book and you don't think it's for you, then don't don't use it, because I feel that, you know, yourself, you do know we have an internal authority that is talking to us all of the time and to not disregard that, to listen. So to, that we're listening to our instincts, really. And if there's somebody listening to this at home who's exhausted from lack of sleep, where should they begin? Is it finding out which method best suits them? Is it picking up a book or is it picking up the phone and calling someone like yourself? I think any one of those things is a good option. Um, Like I like to feel that here I have a, you know, like a very good track record. Parents speak very highly of me, thank goodness. And I think I could be viewed as a trusted sleep source, if that makes sense. So I, when I work with families individually, obviously I have a certain approach, but I fit that around what I feel a parent needs. So it's individual, it's tailored, and I'm really meeting that parent where they're at. There's some things I can't change, but like, you know, if 
I know that one parent is away from Monday to Friday. You know, I try to figure out things to help the situation and I can do that on an individual basis. So I think obviously that's that's my I said that too early. That's my true love. That's the piece of my work that I love because it's the connected piece for me as well with the family. But that's not for everybody. The budget doesn't extend that to that for everybody either. And so I guess and I do think my book is a great resource and my because it's again it's, it's balanced view, it's practice based evidence, um, and parents all over the world have had success using it. But again, sometimes you're just too tired to read. And then I guess I try to supplement the book then with my videos and my social media, because I do think then that helps then to supplement the information in the book when you're not working with me directly. Yeah, and something you say in your Instagram that I absolutely loved was, there are no mistakes. There's no such thing as bad habits. There's no right or wrong way. Nothing is your fault. You're not the only one. Everything is only for one season. You are enough. I just thought that was so beautiful and something to remember on your good and your bad days. Yeah, I know. I wish I had been told that I loads myself, you see. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece and something that I know myself and many other moments would relate to. We're almost at the end of the episode, so I have three questions to ask you. What would you tell your pregnant self? Oh, have four more. No, I'm joking. Um... You know, I kind of, I don't have any regrets. I have to say that because I'm not that type of person. But I think I would have loved to slow down more. I felt under, especially with my first baby, I feel I felt under such pressure to be this, you know, everything, outwardly everything. And I kind of wish I'd stayed in my pajamas more. Yeah, I can definitely empathise with that. You definitely feel you have to put on the perfect show. Yeah, I did have that. I was quite young having him. I was in my, I was 26. Um, I was a businesswoman, for want of a better description. I think I was kind of, I think I had a thing that image was everything. And I wanted to be, it looked that way. Do you know that kind of, that, I don't know, I just... I think I wish I had, I would have told my pregnant self to slow down, enjoy, savor, you know, hug more, kiss more, just, just slow down. And I say, it's hard to know because I often feel, oh my goodness, did I enjoy that really young period when they're really young? Did I enjoy it enough? And then I look at photographs and, oh my God, we had such a great time. But sometimes you kind of look back and you've coloured your thinking with different things, you know. Um, I think I would say to focus on you and your little relationship and just try not to worry about the external forces. Absolutely. What one product can you not live without? I don't know if I'm going to be any good at this one. I think there's two things that I really like. I definitely feel I nearly always wear makeup. So I think maybe I might say, I don't know if I can live without my foundation, um, which sounds really superficial. Um, but if it wasn't going to be my foundation, it might be my pajamas, because I love to, at the end of the day, get into my pajamas and just, so there's two references to pajamas there, so you can tell. I like to, re- I, I think I've become better at being a relaxed person, and I think that makes part of that for me. There's no harm with putting on a bit of makeup. It's like your armour, I think. 
I do. And I think it makes you feel like this morning, like I go for a walk every Saturday morning with my dad. We've got dogs and we've got a dog each, I should say. And I meet him every Saturday morning. And sometimes I just get out of bed and go. And sometimes I get out of bed, have my shower and go. And this morning I had my shower and I could have easily not put on my makeup. But do you know, I put on my makeup, evened out my skin tone, looked a bit nicer. No one's looking at me. We go for a walk in the woods. But you know what? I just just made me feel made me feel like I didn't look too bad after all. And Lucy, what has been your magic moment? I love loads of things. Like I love life. I'm a very positive person. I love seeing my four children together. I love family nights where we all have a takeaway and it's a bit chaotic and I just just I just love that. I, I also love that I'm one of six and we've all got kids and I actually love when we all get together and the kids, the, all the cousins are together and the big ones help the small ones. And I think that's lovely. That's beautiful. For anyone out there who's looking for a sleep solution, I suppose from a personal level, I would highly recommend Lucy. And that's why I invited her on because I've used her book and I completely trust her method. Lucy's book is The Baby Sleep Solution and her website is sleepmatters.ie. Thank you so much, Lucy, for joining me. It's been a pleasure to speak to you and thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me because obviously it's an honour to be asked and I loved, I've loved chatting to you. So thank you for listening to today's episode of For All Mankind. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review and subscribe. If you'd like to send me a message, please email forallmumkind at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at forallmumkind. And see you on the next episode of the podcast. Thank you.